There is no growth in comfort and no comfort in growth. Business today typically values and promotes leaders for their subject expertise. Leaders who have command of the details and execute based on knowledge and experience are highly respected. However, to grow as a leader, you have to get out of your comfort zone. That means learning to lead without just being the expert. Learn to gain the trust and respect of a team that might know more than you do. Get comfortable with ambiguity and with not having all the information. Develop the skills and confidence to lead in a different way. Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. I'm Wanda Wallace. Now, today, I want to talk about change. So, let's say you're leading a group and you know change is needed. Maybe even your boss has said to you that as you took on this particular role, you need to shake things up a bit. Most of the time, when people take leadership positions, it fundamentally becomes about change in one way or another. However, from the concept to the reality is often a bit tricky. I I say it's not a straight line. It never quite goes the way we think it should go. And I think it's an old adage to say that most change efforts fall far short of expectations. So today, we're going to drop the frameworks about change, we're going to drop the models about change, and instead we're going to look at some real cases on the ground. How have leaders made change work, last, and stick? Whether that's a change in habits, a change in mindset, or a change in the culture. And we'll cover all three. So with me today is Jacqueline Abbott-Dean. Jacqueline is an experienced consulting practitioner, having worked around the world, She describes herself as a below-the-radar change agent, and she specializes in cases where technology and systems and people converge. She's held senior roles at Lloyds Bank and at McKinsey & Company, and more recently has founded her own firm, Tactics. Now, I have to also say Jackie loves doing um, some research as well, so she's just finished a master's thesis on superior leadership, and she's heavily involved in a project at the University of Surrey in the United Kingdom at the Center for Digital Economy, which is around convergence of satellite, 5G, and people. And there's lots to say about that. So, Jackie, welcome to the show. Jacqueline, I should say. Sorry. Uh, hi, Wanda. Yeah, uh, thank you. Yeah, great to be here. Looking forward to our conversation. I'm looking forward to it as well. Um, I hear so many people talk about change, and everybody thinks that they have a great idea about how to make change, and most of it never works out the way we want. So you've done a lot of work with organizations, and you've seen the reality of what it takes to make change happen. Let's start with habits. What does it take to change people's habits? Yeah. Well, everyone knows how difficult it is to change habits. And we only have to read about the people, number of people who've been told to stop smoking, that we should all be walking 10,000 steps a day, that we shouldn't be on our iPhones and our social media. Uh, and the reality is that habits are an incredible challenge. Um, and our approach when we start looking at change is always to focus on the people first, which I think a lot of organizations don't. They do it the other way around. They look at all the processes and systems, technology, etc., and then somewhere buried in the 60-page pack is something to do with the people. I won't say that always, but certainly in our experience, we've, we've found that. 
Um, and our approach to mindset change, Wanda, is really strongly linked uh, to habit. Sorry, our approach to the habit change is very strongly linked to the mindsets, and I know we're going to talk about that later. Um, but our first steps when we're talking to clients who have said, you know, this this has got to change, is we have a conversation about mindsets and habits, and the question that we ask uh, around habits. Uh, is really to find out whether the habits that we're looking to change are habitual. Um, and as we all know, habitual habits are generally unconscious and queued up by whatever environment we're in. And an example of that is if I go to the movies, I always buy popcorn. I never eat popcorn unless I go to the movies. So... Yeah, it's a sort of unconscious habit that I buy popcorn. Whereas another habit is intentional and conscious, and that might be that I definitely walk my 10,000 steps every day because I know that it's going to keep me fit. And I choose, if I'm a smoker, I have to intentionally and consciously choose where I'm going to smoke because the laws now dictate that you cannot smoke inside your office building. So once upon a time you could. Um, nowadays we have to consciously choose to do that. So the first thing that we do in our approach is figure out whether habits are habitual and unconscious or whether they are intentional and conscious because it makes a big difference in terms of how people accept change. Um, I, I don't know, does that make sense? Well, it makes, of- yeah. it makes sense to classify the routine behaviors that we just do without necessarily thinking and actively choosing to do them into categories where we say they're sort of unconscious. I just go about my life and I do the same thing. Like I think for me, turning on the coffee pot in the morning is an unconscious habit. It just happens. Absolutely. And then the yeah. intentional ones that are more conscious that I'm actually choosing, but it is still a habit. Um, yeah, yeah it, it, it is. And, you know, I've got a couple of stories to tell in terms of, um, uh, you know, where, where, this, where, where this happens. And I'm thinking about a, a leader whose name is Richard at a large IT firm. And to say Richard is a geek is an understatement, so you know the type of person that I'm talking about, uh, Wanda. I love doing geeky stuff, and um, he's a senior leader with a team that are responsible for keeping the IT running across lots and lots of different sites. Um, Mm -hmm. And he and the executive team decided, um, and I'm sure listeners will understand this, that this model of having IT people on different sites maintaining the IT hardware and software, you know, is probably quite an expensive way of doing things and it needed to be decentralized and standardized. And I think that's all familiar to us. Right. Um, and he could, have, he could have very easily just said, right, this is what we're doing, guys. You know, we're, 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 sorry, we are centralizing and um, we're going to standardize and that means all your jobs are changing. Mm-hmm. Despite the fact that he is a geek, he was also really, uh, you know, in our view, is a really good leader because he was very concerned about his people. 
And, and what he asked us is how could he help these guys, as he called them, on the ground, see the benefits of this centralization. Um, and more than that, how could he help them transition uh, into what he saw as more of a business partner role? Now, mm-hmm. just think about it. You've got people who are walking around fixing things. You know, they, they, right. that's what they do all day. Somebody will call them and say, I've got a problem, I can't log in. And before you know it, you know, these guys will be there at the desk and you can sign in or whatever. So um, it represented a significant change, and I think Richard recognized that. So our first conversations with him, uh, when he told us how his team operated, was to ask him what it was he thought the team loved about providing that local service. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it was quite interesting because what he said was they loved being able to fix things immediately. Mm-hmm. And what we all know, of course, is that's instant gratification and a hit to your dopamine. You get a dopamine yeah. hit when you do something that makes you feel really good. And um, so they had this. They they had this instant gratification and they felt very valued locally. And he said the truth of it is they were really in a bit of a comfort zone. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, we can understand that from, you know, moving into a business partner role is going to involve a lot more skills than what they were currently doing. So I think the information, when we started to talk to um, the IT teams and we started getting their stories, uh, we started drawing a picture of what they did when they first came into the office in the morning, what their routines were. And like you, I wonder, it's, you know, they turned the coffee machine on. They didn't even think yeah. about it. Um, they, uh, you know, they got, it, they got it, their stuff in the locker. They turned their computers on. Um, and then we asked them to um, talk about the routines that they had. Um, and, the, and as they started explaining this to us, we were able to inject into that conversation, the whole notion that some habits were just habitual and unconscious and others were really quite intentional. Um, And let's start mapping that out, Um, uh, which we we did. Um, And I think the interesting thing is that Richard explained his vision. um, And on the one hand, he had said to us, you know, we're, we're really very caring about really caring but on the other hand he didn't actually have any choice this is the way the company is going they had to take a more global approach mm-hmm. so Richard's challenge was not just changing the work routines and habits but changing the entire nature of the work um, and and uh, and that and that was that was quite interesting so we, we worked with him and we ran what we called the same old way and there's something new sessions. So, <laughs> okay. Um, and the same old way clearly were was a, um, if you like, an articulation of all of the work habits. And it sounds really simple, but sometimes simple things are the right things because they help people transition from one place to another. And in this case, I think, 
we were able, they were able to identify and categorize their work habits. And out of that came some, their work habits included things like how they behaved in meetings. Um, so, for example, agreeing actions and then not following up or talking about the fact that customers would be pretty challenging, but they just appease them. Uh, having meetings for meeting's sake. So they were able to add to the conversation about habits and talk about all of the habits in their workplace, some of which were habitual, and they needed to be tackled too, not just the habits that were going to be changed as a result of the job. Right. Right. So I can imagine that, you know, one thing that IT operations often adopt is a response time indicator that we have to get back to our customers or whoever's called us with whatever problem within X minutes or hours or some version of that. And it becomes such a, you know, driving force that it controls how people actually spend their time without actually stopping to say, does every single kind of activity need to be responded to that quickly? So is that the kind of thing that you were talking to when you're saying, what's the habit? The habit is immediate response, and we don't necessarily need to do that all the time. Is that the kind of thing you did? Yes, it was, because that's exactly right, Wanda. The the habits were immediate response or certainly uh, a response within, you know, because they were in a physical location, it, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it, it was that day. Right. Now, clearly with things being centralized, one of the difficulties for the IT guys was knowing that when they got that request from one of the leaders to come and help fix whatever problem it was, they had to say no. They had to yeah. refer the leader to the help desk and then the whole process would kick off. So there was a major habit change, not just from those guys who were changing their role, but actually from the users themselves who were dependent on, um, on these IT people. And, and the transition was not easy. But, you know, there's, as always, there were people who were resisting that um, and um, saying, no, well, I don't want to do that. I don't want to go on a help desk. I, you know, I want Joe to come mm-hmm. and fix my computer like he always has. Mm-hmm. Um, so that didn't help, um, but we ha- we have to say that Richard, you know, was really good about this because he he um, asked the team what cues needed to be put up in the various sites to remind everyone that this was a change and that this change um, they they could no longer. So they designed some posters, um, you know, they put um, they put red tape. Uh, over certain machines and, you know, they did all sorts of things that that mm-hmm. just cued the, uh, everyone to be able to say, okay, this, this is, ch- we're not doing the same as we've always done. Okay. So that's a cue back to the users of the IT service to also change their habits because it's not just your IT Absolutely. providers. You've got the entire organization that has to change their routine of, I just called Joe because Joe always fixes it. Okay. Yeah. You know, yeah. Jacqueline, there's a lot that's been written about changing habits, and I'm sure you've read this book and the, the adage that it takes 21 days to change a habit. 
Do you find that that's true? Does it take that long or is it easier? Is it, a, you know, once I get my head around the habit, I'm okay? Or what's the deal? Oh, I read something fairly recently, like this week, which said it actually takes about 254 days. Um, So somewhere between 21, I know 21 is the, um, you know, the sort of uh, accepted uh, time. But in reality, I think it it takes more than that. I, I think I think when they talk about 21 days, it's if, you know, if you're a man and you always shave with your right hand and you always shave the right side first, if you shave the left side first, for the 21 days, then you can change that habit. It's that sort of thing. But um, I I think work habits, because you're talking not just about an individual, you're talking about a group, you're talking about teams, you're talking about organizations. So it would be very optimistic, unless it was an enforced change. Um, You know, enforced changes, which happen with things like cybersecurity, Mm-hmm. Um, uh, they don't happen efficiently and effectively all of the time. But if an order goes out for people to say, change your passwords every three days, uh, you know, if a directive co- goes out, then what you find is that that habit will, will change pretty quickly because mm-hmm. there's structures and mechanisms in place to help it change. Right. But right. I can't that, log I in if I don't. Like, yeah. I, yeah, I think it's really quite difficult if there isn't an enforced change. Um, I think it's quite difficult for people to change their habits. They will over time. Um, okay. And it certainly took longer than 21 days with Richard's team. It took a lot longer okay. than that. Okay. I, I, I can I, imagine. I, I do. Yeah. Especially when there's so many people involved, I can imagine it does take a lot longer than an individual might adopt. But you've got people who wouldn't use the service for you know, 180 days, and then on the 190th day, suddenly they need it, and they're just into the cycle of changing habits. One last question before we take a break, Jacqueline. Is making the habits conscious, so taking those habitual unconscious responses and making them conscious and making the intentional ones more conscious. So I've labeled them, I've mapped them. Is that the secret to getting people moving in the right direction? I think that's an interesting question. Uh, I think that if you have conscious intentional habits, to be aware of them makes it a lot easier to change. And I think you're right. If you make an unconscious habitual, if if it's habitual and it's unconscious, and you bring that into your consciousness, yes, then it's much easier to change. But I think the secret to this is to be able to identify, you know, which is it so that you can take the necessary action, bring it into your awareness or not. Okay. And I take your point also about all the environmental cues or structures that you would use that just keeps this in top of mind. We often talk about those as nudges or behavioral design that make it easier. Okay, we're going to take a break. Jacqueline, I also see why we've set up the next one, which is we've talked about habits and the recognition of the two kinds of habits, the habitual unconscious ones versus the more intentional semi-conscious, I guess I'm going to use the word habit that we're aware of, we make the decision on, but we're not necessarily thinking actively about on a given day. 
making those more available, more intentional, more aware of, and using cues in the environment as a big piece of what helps us start the change process, accept the change process and get moving in the right direction. Now, that comes hand in hand, though, with the mindset, being able to change my mindset view on what it is I'm doing and why I'm doing it. So when we come back, we're going to talk about mindset. With me today is Jacqueline Abbott-Dean, and her company is Tactics. Jacqueline's got loads of experience on the ground helping real companies change, and we'll be right back. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. How is your work-life balance? In most businesses, no matter where you are positioned, there is always room for improvement. If you're an executive, learn insight about your business. Are you an employee? Learn how to better work with your team. Even if you're not in business, you can learn where your strengths and weaknesses can be played to their best potential. The Work-Life Balance with host Rick Morris can be heard live every Friday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. If you want more information on the articles, books, coaching, and seminars we offer, go to our website at www.leadershipforuminc.com. You're sure to find some helpful links, videos, and more to help you create a winning strategy for your organization. Leadership Forum, Inc., helping organizations get it and keep it. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Out of the Comfort Zone. To reach Dr. Wanda Wallace or her guest, call into the program at 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to wanda.wallace at leadershipforuminc.com. Now, back to Out of the Comfort Zone. Welcome back to the show. With me today is Jacqueline Abbott-Dean. Jacqueline is a globally experienced consulting practitioner who specializes in work at where technology, systems, and people change converge. And as I've said, Jackie Jacqueline is a below-the-radar screen change agent and more importantly, focused on what is really happening on the ground when change is actually happening. Senior experience at Lloyds Bank and at McKinsey & Company and now with Tactics. And we've just been talking about the importance of having your employees or your team or those around you in the midst of change recognize the habits that we're all engaged in, the standard routine daily patterns that are easy to fall back on the trap of continuing to do and therefore thwart your change efforts. Recognizing those habits come in two forms. One is an intentional habit where I'm being somewhat conscious of it, and the ones are the where I'm less conscious and it's much more routine, habitual, if you would let us use that word. Now, hand in hand with that is changing the mindset. So, Jacqueline, first, is it really possible to change somebody's mindset? Um, well, the answer to that question is, is I don't believe any one person can change yours or mine or anyone else's mindset. What I believe we can do is create conditions for people to choose to change their mindset. And I think that's a really important differentiator. 
Um, we never go into organizations and say, well, we can change the mindset. No, we can't. What we can do is work with you to create whatever environment is that then makes it much easier for people to make that decision. Okay. So give me an example of how this works. What does it look like to create the conditions where people choose to change their mindset? Okay. Well, let me just take a step back, Wanda, because when I think about mindsets, you know, we're talking about altering mental models, um, um, and that's that's Mm -hmm. not easy, and we know that. Uh, And we also can think about it from a local perspective as well as a global perspective, because look, just look how quickly the world changed its mindset about airport security after 9-11, or right. how we went from thinking that smoking was cool to knowing that it is anything but. So uh, if the circumstances are there, such as um, a threat to our immediate security, then uh, we, w- we, we went from airport security is a real hassle to airport security is an absolute must, and we will all do that, and it's a good thing. Um, so to your question, um, Wanda, I've got, I've got a couple of examples that um, okay. I can talk about. Um, I've got a, a client of ours is a global HR director at an international university in the Middle East. And let's say her name is Tina, and she had a major challenge on her hands. Um, being in the Middle East was, uh, you know, quite... Uh, culturally, you know, it was a big, big change for her. Um, and um, she, the issue that she had was that the staff at the university expected to be promoted. And they expected to be promoted based on their length of service. And provided they'd been there for about a year, they thought and had expectations that it was now time to be promoted. Um, and Tina, uh, as the HR director, had uh, other ideas about this, and was very. It was very challenging because you've got the cultural overlay on this, and it was also a multicultural workforce. I think I think there was something like seventy different nationalities working on campus. Um, now, this was a new university, and their goal was to become gold standard. So one of the things that Tina knew was that if they were going to have be a gold standard university, they definitely needed to have gold standard workforce. And she had to move that mindset to um, one where people got promoted on merit. So she wanted a merit-based culture, um, which is would meet the international standards. Mm-hmm. So you can see... You know, there's quite a lot of there was quite a lot of complexities in this one. Yeah. Um, and when we when we started working with Tina, we we took a look at the existing mindset of the expected uh, the culture where we expected promotion. And um, again, we we kind of simplified this and said, well, why don't we break this down? and have a look at it from two perspectives. Let's have a look and see what elements of this mindset are cognitive and intellectual, rational, and what, if any, are emotional. 
So, mm-hmm. you know, when we look at a mindset, the, our approach is to, you know, ask ourselves that question. Is it, is, is it cognitive? Is that a cognitive one or is that an emotional one? Um, and, you know, we only have to look around the world at the moment to see the tension that um, cognitive and emo- cognitive and emotional mindsets have. And it, you know, we look at climate change, we look at politics, we look at all sorts of things, and it's definitely there. But we had this third dimension, which was cultural, um, that we had to be very mindful about. And um, on the cognitive side, Tina and her team uh, quickly identified all the all the reasons why they needed to change to a merit uh, um, merit culture. Um, and on the emotional side, that that became very interesting because the mindset included the fact that it had always been this way, even though it was a new university. She was about. Uh, it was about five years old when she went there, so it was a relatively new university. But in that five years, they'd established all these norms. And for the local nationals in the Middle East, there was this whole issue of saving face and what to tell your family when you didn't get a promotion after a year. So that those may sound really trivial things to us, but in other cultures, that is a big deal. Um, yeah. So these were some um, uh, some very real issues that we we had to um, deal with, and there, there there were other cultural things as well. But I think the main thing was how do we how do we change this mindset that, so that it's acceptable to our local uh, our local nationals. Right. And um, but yeah. So, what so we, how did, we ran what we called gridlock sessions with Tina and her team. And in those sessions, um, we asked the participants to identify, you know, the rational reasons that were part of the mindsets. Um, and mm-hmm. then we also asked them to go through and tell us what they were sensing or feeling that would make up part of the emotional element um, and as you can imagine, it was pretty easy for them to come up with all the rational stuff. But again, we've got culture to consider. They're not used to talking about their feelings and, you know, that's not just not the done thing. So we, we have to be really quite specific about what we asked. And so we asked them things like, you know, what's making you uncomfortable about this change? And we asked them to write things down so that they didn't have to... Um, expose themselves in a you know in a group where they might be uncomfortable did they have any feelings about the change uh that the change shouldn't take place and not surprisingly actually people didn't you know um and then when we asked them what the biggest risk to them was you know a lot of them wrote things like um you know it it was to do with family it was to do with um well it it's always been that way, and I expected it, and I've been here for 18 months, et cetera, et cetera. Now, um, Tina had to put, obviously, she had to place a performance management um, program, uh, put that in place, but she didn't want, I think the interesting thing that dif- distinguishes her as, a gr- uh, as, in my book, a really great leader, is she didn't want the change to just be about a performance management process. She, mm-hmm. she knew that as a result of her workforce being multicultural that she needed to be ultra sensitive to the change 
And so she started out with the people side of this change rather than the process side. Okay. So how did she – so you run sessions, you called them gridlock sessions, where you get people to talk about the rational reasons why we're doing this, and then you get people to talk about carefully – noted about how they're feeling about those changes and where they see the risks or the biggest place where I think the feelings come up. So now as people talk about these feelings, both the rational and the emotional, does that begin to change the mindset? I mean, how do you, how do you get them to say, okay, I get it? I, th- I think, um, yes. The, when people, well, I think in, in this example, when employees understood that the, there was a space for them to voice their concerns about that change, then they could recognize that possibly the thing that was holding them back was a fear um, that, that could be handled. Um, and um, so, so I, think, I think, yes, I think that, um, and I'm losing my train here, Wanda. Tell me, uh, can you repeat the question? Well, no, I'm going to go on to a different piece of it because you certainly, I certainly believe this all the time, that when people have a chance to talk, to be heard, and to be heard is not logically what I think only, it's also what am I feeling and what am I worried about, and that when they feel heard, they're much more likely to accept that, yes, a change makes some sense. Or to go along with it, or yes. to give it a try, or to take a first step. That is, uh, in our experience, that is absolutely it. When employees feel heard, when they have a voice, when they feel that someone cares, uh, and the feedback that we got from um, the case where I was talking about Richard and the habits was because he approached it from a people-first perspective, his team even though he was really geeky, they knew that he cared about them. He cared how they wanted it. And we had the same thing here with Tina. She, uh, you know, she had the cultural sensitivity and she needed, I think once those local nationals felt that they were being listened to, that, that made a difference in how they could then approach uh, changing their mindsets about the expectation of promotion. Okay. I find when I talk to people about change that two forms of resistance, if you will, kind of get ingrained. One of those is you're doing this, boss, for your benefit, not for mine, which is why that sense of you actually care about me and you're listening to me and you want this to work for me matters so much. Because if you don't feel that, then I started to say it's just for you and for your promotion and for your glory in some way. So that's one thing that, that I think happens. The second thing that I think happens is people see a problem. They see that this thing you're talking about doesn't connect with what we have always done and how we've always done it. So how are yeah. we going to do this thing that we've always done? And we're back to the habits again in some ways. So I can see why those two elements make such a difference in getting employees to be accepting, open, willing to entertain a change and give it a try. Yeah, uh, and I, absolutely, I agree with that. And in, in the last example about Tina, she asked her, she put a, a team together. So not only did she not just impose the performance management system, but they helped design their own competency framework, 
which included the cultural and people facets. So that's what I call, you know, really, uh, that's really good leadership. Um, now, she, not all companies have that kind of time and resource. I accept that. But in this instance, she did. And as a result, that program, and, you know, we were, we were talking about a year to 18 months to get everything through and done and lots and lots of different conversations. Um, but that, that mindset went away. It absolutely went away. All right. So as I'm listening to you, it reminds me a little bit of Ron Heifetz's work where he, you know, his favorite phase is you have to give work back to the people, that you have to get people engaged in determining something about how this is going to go forward for them, how they want to respond to it. Or in the case of Richard's, um, what kind of cues they could put up to get their the people they've been serving to respond to the change. And it strikes me as that's what you're saying here as well. Yes. I think I think I think I am, and certainly in our experience of change, the more that change is imposed, the more resistance there is. The more that change, the change journey is shared. The more consulted people feel, the more voice, the more that they're listened to, then the more chance of success that you're going to have. And I think we all know that. Yeah. All right. So if I just summarize what I've heard from you is. Um, they're sort of, it starts with this people first, not the systems and control mechanisms first, which is what makes it feel like it's imposed on me. So people first. And I'm going to analyze the habits of the group that's going to change. What are they currently doing and how are they currently doing it? And how much is it aware and how much is it unaware? And then I want to kind of understand their mindset. So I want to listen both for the rational and for the emotional part. In the doing of that, I want people to feel that they have been cared for, that they have a voice, and that they have been heard. And then I want to give them some component of determining next step in some way. What else? We do how we define the cues, how we define the competency models, something that they can do work on. How's that sound? Yep. It sounds sounds great. Yeah, absolutely. All right. I love this notion. I think you're right that we often start with systems um, because it's so easy to think through the systems. You analyze the systems and in some ways easier to change the systems than it feels like it is to change people. And we hope that the people will get on board and go along with it. And this notion of starting with the people first, I think, is actually critical. Okay, Jacqueline, we're going to take a break again. When we come back, I want to talk about culture now. And I want to talk about the indicators of where the culture is a strong one and is going to embrace this kind of work. And where are the indicators that, you know, you've got a cultural problem you're going to have to tackle. So with me today is Jacqueline Abbott-Dean and Jacqueline with his company called Tactics. She's a globally experienced consulting practitioner who works at the juncture between technology, systems, and people change. And we'll be right back. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. If you want more information on the articles, books, coaching, and seminars we offer, go to our website at www.leadershipforuminc.com. You're sure to find some helpful links, videos, and more to help you create a winning strategy for your organization. Leadership Forum, Inc., helping organizations get it and keep it. Tune in to the soul of enterprise, business in the knowledge economy. 
with co-hosts Ron Baker and Ed Klass. Ron and Ed will show you how to recognize that wealth is created by intellectual capital. It's all in the possibilities that we can create and that are created for us. These possibilities are destined to be discovered by human imagination and through the service of others, creating a brighter future for all of us. The Soul of Enterprise is heard live every Friday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Business Channel and simulcast at the same time on the Voice America Variety Channel. The business community's first choice in Internet talk radio, Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Out of the Comfort Zone. To reach Dr. Wanda Wallace or her guest, call into the program at 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to wanda.wallace at leadershipforuminc.com. Now, back to Out of the Comfort Zone. Welcome back. With me today is Jacqueline Abbott-Dean. Jacqueline is with Tactics, and she's got lots of experience helping real leaders in real situations make effective change. As we've just been saying, the approach is to start with the people-centered thing first. So people first, systems and processes later. And making sure that we've looked at people's habits, understood them, know how to tackle them, have cues to change them, some conscious thinking about it. And then we've looked at both the emotional reactions to the change as well as the cognitive logical rational thinking about the change that leaves people feeling that they've been cared for that they have a voice that they've been heard and then the third piece is getting them engaged in doing something about it now there's been a lot i'm heartened that there's been a lot of discussion lately about culture and recognizing that in places what we need to do is to begin to change the culture however I don't find that we have an awful lot of understanding how to go about doing that. So, Jacqueline, you've done a bunch of work to understand the indicators for when the culture creates the problem. So let's start with that. What are the conditions you know to watch for that are going to tell you that things are going to go badly wrong? Okay. Um, and I think what I'd like to start with is, is, is just saying that the press at the moment is littered with examples of where the culture has gone wrong, um, whether that's financial services or car makers or media, the UK Parliament, um, and just this week, uh, a hospital um, scandal from uh, the early 2000s. So, um, and what's what's interesting about this in terms of culture is we've we've recently completed a case study where we uh, stood back and did a case study about Oxfam, and your listeners will know about Oxfam, and the fact that the leaders faced this choice of revealing the truth, uh, shocking as it was at the time in 2012, or waiting for it to be discovered, which it was this year. And as a result of the decision that the leaders made and the culture that surrounded them, uh, as we all know from the press, Oxfam is, uh, is really suffering at the moment. Um, so to answer, uh, directly answer your question, Wanda, we, we work with Dr. Rob Bogosian in the U.S. who has done the research um, and he has looked at the phenomena phenomenon of silence in organizations and voice. And one of the things that we can correlate is that if there's silence in your culture, 
then the likelihood of something going wrong is much higher than if you've got lots of voice. Now, in our work, we our clients say to us, oh, we measure absolutely everything. We have employee engagement. We have culture surveys. Um, you know, we at the end, you know, we've got we've got pages of metrics. And I think our approach again is to be is a really simple approach because it's a little bit, you know, it's a little bit like doing a blood test. If you if you know certain things are present in the blood test, then that leads you to look further. And I think that's what we're doing when we're looking in organisations and saying, um, is is voice present, and how do we know it's present? And we can look at companies, for example, like Netflix, who have a really um, uh, great reputation for their culture, they're transparent, they're open, and um, some some of the new tech companies, um, whereas if we want to um, look and see where silence is, other than looking in the press on or practically on a daily basis, I think most companies and employees can recognize it if they're turning a blind eye to it. And if they're turning a blind eye to what is happening in their organization, things such as uh, power being inappropriately used, um, that it's dominated by hierarchy, the mindset is things like leaders know best, and these are all the sorts of things that we find where if you conform, that's a strength. If you disagree with the, you know, the powers that be, that's a weakness. You know, there's a level of fear in the organization. If any of these symptoms are in the organization, then leaders need to look really closely. And uh, as happened in the case that I just mentioned about the hospital um, in 2000, I think it was around 2000, people who put their head above the parapet to talk about and raise these issues that were going on in this hospital, um, they just got shot, so, you know, uh, figuratively. Um, and uh, what, we, what we know as a contrast to that is where there is voice and voice is encouraged, there will be um, knowledge transfer that's really quick rather than knowledge being sat on um, and that leaders create... Um, mechanism so that people feel a little bit like the examples um, where people feel like they have a voice and that it's got merit. Um, and I think what it really boils down to is that term psychological safety. If, if an organization does not have psychological safety, and that's, you know, the symptoms I've just described, some of the symptoms I've just described, then the leaders need to look really carefully at that. So just to repeat the symptoms, I like this analogy of a blood test. So we look to see, are any of these things present? If they are present, then it's an indication that you need to do some more tests, look a little deeper, figure out what's going on. So the things that you listed were things where power is inappropriately used, that there's um, the hierarchy is dominating, that there's a sense that leaders know best and everybody else just follow the orders. There's a belief that you need to conform and there's a level of fear. And one of of the things I see, Jacqueline, is the senior leader often has really good intent about having transparency and openness and listening to people. 
and is sometimes unaware of what's happening a step or even two steps below where that voice is being silenced. So what's your recommendation? How do you know if it's actually, if there is voice below you in the organization? Well, I think one of the things that you can do is start start um, including that as one of your metrics. How do we measure voice? How do we measure silence? Um, because I think in our experience, you're, you're, you know, a lot of leaders are, they can be, not all, uh, they can be surprised that their leadership style is shutting down their teams and their employees. And, um, and, and, and it's, you know, it's quite hard to find out that uh, people don't speak up, that people do, you know, team members do acquiesce. Uh, you know, they don't come up with all the bright ideas because, why? Sh- you know, why should they? Because they won't get listened to, etc. Um, and um, so, so I think that, um, I, I think me- including it as a metric is a really sensible way because senior leaders like, well, they don't, I don't say they all like it, but if you put data in front of a, se- of a leader, you know, it, uh, and that, that data is robust. Um, and the kind of work that we do, we benchmark, you know, we benchmark alongside all their other metrics uh, mm-hmm. and correlate it. But we're able to say, well, this is your index for silence and voice. Um, mm-hmm. and, and they can include, include that on an annual basis. But, you know, I think, I think something like measuring silence and voice. Um, and Wanda, I think one of the really interesting things is when we are in conversation with C-suite executives and we ask the question, where do you think your next problem is going to come from? They always know. They always mm. know whether that's an external threat or whether it's an internal threat. And if it's an internal threat um, and they've got some concerns about, you know, a team, a leader, a particular leader's style, um, they, 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 they know it. And one of the things that, that our work does is we can confirm or deny it, so to speak. Okay. I like that. So you have an index that helps you know and benchmarked against other companies how much silence and how much voice there is in the company. Good for you. That's fabulous. I find sometimes yeah, voice... Organizations have voice. I mean, they, they are the companies that, that everybody wants to work for. You know, they're yeah. they're the comp- they're the companies that uh, problem solve together. You know, they they pull a team in immediately and say, "Look, we've got this problem." They share their information, um, and we all know whether we work in, in uh, or with organisations or in organisations that that where the perspective. Because one of the things we're measuring, Wanda, is what do the employees think? What's mm-hmm. their actual experience of this leader? Is it a good yeah. experience, you know, are they, uh, or, or otherwise? But it's very yeah. specifically looking at silence and voice. So the answer to your question is there are a lot of different components of measuring culture. But as I said, what we do is a blood test and look for a couple of enzymes. <laughs> I love it. It's an important one. It strikes me also that um, this notion of voice versus silence is a good indication of the level of trust. It's probably a fairly good indication on how much collaboration you're going to have or not have accordingly. 
And I certainly yeah. know an awful lot of CEOs say that one of the biggest transitions, one of these difficult transitions for them is going from an internal peer to being the CEO where suddenly you have to learn not to say so much so other people will speak up. And that activity that you do as a leader that encourages voice, I think is a really powerful thing for someone to be looking yeah, at when they're I, leading. I, yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And of course, the other thing is, it, it, if you don't have voice, it's very hard to have innovation. Because mm-hmm. if, you, if, if you are shutting down the ideas, if, you're, if your staff don't feel psychologically safe, they're not going to give you that discretionary effort at right. all. And inno- yeah. innovation comes from having open culture, transparency, um, divergent thinking. Um, so, uh, you know, it's, it, it, it's funny. It's, I, I go back to the blood test. You know, if that enzyme is present, then you've got to start doing some digging to find out right. what else it's right. going to tell you. I love this. You know, years ago, we used to talk about a dashboard, you know, leadership dashboard. This would be a perfect thing to have on your leadership dashboard and give you a complete indication of where you need to work and where you need to think about your own style. Well, exactly. Jacqueline, we are out of time. As always, it's great to have you on as a guest. I remind everybody that it's Jacqueline Abbott-Dean. She works with Tactics, is the current company, and specializes in change on the ground, particularly when it involves technology systems and people coming together. And as you've heard from Jacqueline's point of view, we have to start with the people first, not the systems and the processes. And the people first, we want to look at the habits And then we're going to look at how people think and feel about the change that's coming. And we want to give people a voice. And then we want to monitor the culture on a regular basis to make sure that there is no silence, that people have a voice. And it's out of that that we're going to find the best of our cultures that drive innovation, engagement, trust, and collaboration. So, Jacqueline, thanks for being a guest. Thank you for having me on the show. It's a pleasure. And join us next week. We're going to be talking with Stu Wilkinson. And the topic is, as a professional sports Um, consultant, what is it that we can learn from sport and from business about top performance? Join us next week. Thank you for joining us for Out of the Comfort Zone. Tune in again for another edition with Dr. Wanda Wallace next Friday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time and 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Reach outside your comfort zone this week.